Welcome to Career in Ruins, the only podcast that you find more interesting the older we get. Hello mate. Hey. Hello mate. How, How are you doing? doing? Yeah, I'm really well. We're back. It's is this season four. It, I God knows. It, it might be. I, th- I think we've had a lot of breaks, haven't we? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Does one episode count as a season? I think it must do. Although was I on it? I'm not sure. <laughs> well, you sent me a recording, yeah. but Neil Neil Redfern was an adequate replacement. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Was and Matt TV Matt TV's Matt Williams as well. S- so significant that. upgrade. But- that was a, that was a good episode. I enjoyed listening to that one. I must admit, I'm feeling a bit rusty now. I've 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 had three weeks off for Christmas. It's been at least six months since we podcasted. I've almost forgotten how to speak out loud. Yeah, what is this talking malarkey? It's, yeah, it's it's nice to be back though, and it's it's been a, as you say, it's been six months since we last did our uh, our last season. Um, and I mean, it's been a crazy busy month. I mean, we've, we've had our own work to do, obviously, but also. Um, We've had some pretty, a couple of pretty exciting weekends out doing archaeology with Time Team, which was amazing. Yeah, it's been, I'd say probably, probably since I did a master's, what, 10 years ago or so. I think that six months of 2021 was the most intense six months of my life. (laughs) Um, Squeezing a year's worth of field work in, squeezing, getting back to work, getting back in the lecture theatre, seeing students again, being, having to commute again. I'd forgotten what that was like. Um, And on top of all that, getting to do a couple of time team weekends. It was great fun. That was, it was so much fun. And as you say, work, it's work-wise, things have obviously opened up for everyone and we've been able to cram all our work in that we wanted to. But um, two long weekends, one in Cornwall, one in Oxfordshire, looking at Iron Age sites and Romano-British villas. Steady there with the spoilers, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've said anything too wrong, but people, I guess, can log on to the Time Team official YouTube channel to find out more. I was going to say, if people are feeling particularly interested, there are some questionable videos that you and I put together behind the scenes, dig watch videos you can go and see which is uh which was a joy to make maybe not a joy to watch but i'm not sure (laughs) no no no. two idiots just saying i'm a lot Uh, the the, uh the other thing we did was that it was quite fun we went to greece in november yeah we had a fantastic time um it was it was a different season it was rainy it was cold it's the most layers i've ever worn on a field season in greece but we did some some excellent resistivity which despite two weeks of abject failure by the end was working quite well (laughs) yeah who'd have thought substantial amount of rain and resistivity wouldn't quite work together. I know, I know. The best laid plans and all that. But um, just a quick quick thought, actually. Um, Karditsa, at the moment, the nearest city to where we work is currently experiencing some pretty gnarly weather and pretty scary conditions as we speak tonight, actually. So just my thoughts are with colleagues and mm. friends in, in Thessaly and Karditsa on the plains, because I know a lot of our, a lot of the colleagues we work with, um, particularly our machine driver, will be out clearing ditches, clearing drainage, trying to keep the uh, keep the towns dry tonight so good luck to everyone and we're, we're thinking yeah, about you absolutely with with that in mind i guess we had we did have a nice time
time in in Greece, and we we managed to miss the current nasty weather. Um, but we also we had a bit of fun with some cameras as well. We got a bit of a secret project on the go. We did see secret side project, which will hopefully emerge somewhere in between now and twenty twenty four. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess that, that that got you thinking of it, didn't it? As in terms of TV and archaeology. Yeah, throughout today I was pondering, as we normally do on the podcast, we chat about what's caught our eye lately, and it's normally something that's popped up in a magazine or a news article about archaeology. But we're in a golden age. The last couple of weeks has been an absolute golden age of archaeology in the media. There's too much has caught my attention. So even even tonight, (laughs) as we're recording this, um, the Great British digs on now, I think, or in about an hour. About now's time, yeah, I think. Yeah. And then um, digging for Britons on tonight as well, which uh, mm-hmm. will lead us on to our uh, our guest shortly. <laughs> I've been loving, absolutely loving archaeological TV this last week. It's been a real treat. After I must confess, over Christmas I just switched off from work, switched off from archaeology. I just cut it, cut it off entirely. I thought I'm going to just vegetate on a sofa for three weeks with the kids. But getting inspired again, and it's been the combination of those two shows. I think have got me inspired again particularly and i i i, I gotta do a shout out to the johnny flynn soundtrack on because it is <laughs> not jealous at it all it's not jealous absolutely at all. <laughs> um absolutely stunning although i will say a, a nice folksy intro that sounds like something i've, I've heard before hey, um i i mean I'm just, I'm just throwing out there because we haven't spoken about this should we change our theme tune to our new theme tune the folksy one we did on the youtube channel yes definitely yeah yeah, yeah. okay so um <laughs> on reflection i hope everyone enjoyed our new theme tune <laughs> No, you're absolutely right. Digging for Britain. So much amazing content that really shines a a positive and interesting light on archaeology, whether it's uh, it's particularly um, for Digging for Britain, whether it's the different approaches around research or commercial, HS2. just incredible stuff showing up and a lot of our friends and colleagues on there Chloe Duckworth um, on um, uh, the Great British Dig (laughs) and and obviously it's so many people that we know on on Digging for Britain in terms of their research projects popping up Richard Osgoods who was people will know from previous podcasts that we've done did you uh, did you happen to catch the uh, the Mammoth Graveyard with David Attenborough I didn't but did you yeah it's it's amazing it's incredible I mean I would say that as a Forestry England employee, we have a much more interesting mammoth graveyard on one of our sites, but uh, <laughs> it's not a competition. Ooh. And it was fantastic <laughs> to see uh, Keith Wilkinson. Oh, actually. excellent. So, another uh, another po- previous podcast, guest. Yeah. Um, podcast guest number two or number three. Yeah, Career in Snails. Go check it out. Um, but yeah, great to, great to see everything that he was talking to us about. Um meeting David Attenborough unreal and and I guess the the final one that was on relatively recently as well which um you might have seen is the ancient secrets of Allthorpe with uh Charles Spencer I don't know if you happen to catch that one uh, who else was on that Lawrence there's a, a very well-known TV personality, uh, TV archaeologist, uh, Kat Jarman as well. I don't know if you, you come across her at all. Kat Jarman, is that Dr. Kat Jarman, who's a bioarchaeologist, a field archaeologist specialising in Viking women, the Viking Age and Rapa Nui? Ah, yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Who also uses forensic techniques like isotope analysis, carbon dating and DNA analysis on human remains to untangle the experiences of past people from broader historical narratives. Oh, that's exactly the one I'm talking about. If we could talk to her. Is it the person that Bernard Cornwall described as astonishing and compelling? Uh, yes, I believe <laughs> Bernard did very much do that as well. <laughs> How do you know all this information, Derek? Well, it gives me great pleasure to introduce tonight's guest, 
Dr. Kat Jarman. Hey, hello, both of you. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's great to be here. Thank you for being here. And apologies for the most unnatural, natural uh, introduction. In I don't a know podcast. what you mean. That sounded perfectly. It just rolled off the tongue, didn't it? <laughs> it was strong. I liked it. One of the better intros. <laughs> Thank you so much for giving up your your time this evening, and uh, we appreciate it. There's some some great telly to be had, so we'll try not to keep you too long. But it's our first podcast back. We're really excited to have you on as our first guest. And um, I think rather than beat around the bush too much, should we just crack on with some some questions to find out about your career in ruins yeah, today? Why not? Um, so I guess we always ask our guests to kick off by just talking us through the process to how you've got to where you are today. Derek did a great job of explaining all, all the amazing knowledge and experience that you have. And that, I mean, that must be a fascinating story. Yeah, it is. It's not a very simple and straightforward story. It's gone very zigzaggy. Um, and I recently discovered the term portfolio career, which I really like because it's a better way than just winning off in different directions. So it sounds much more like it was it was meant that way. But uh, it sort of feels like where I am now, that, that it was sort of all, all sort of coming together to that particular direction. But yeah, no, it was all a bit... Um, um, sort of zigzaggy really I I actually didn't even start out studying archaeology uh, I didn't know I wanted to be an archaeologist I didn't know you could be an archaeologist actually when I chose university degrees I grew up in, in Norway in Oslo and um, there was no archaeology on TV there was no really understanding that you could do it as a, as a job I loved it as a child but I, I didn't think of it as a career. So I very sensibly started studying architecture, uh, very quickly realised I hated it and uh, I realised I had to go. And uh, But I watched a programme, so this was, this was in England, I'd moved over to study, and um, I watched something on TV. I think it may well have been Time Team, actually. I, I can't remember now, but it was a documentary and I thought, this, this is it. <laughs> this is what I want to do. And you just realised that this could be a career and you could actually, you could work as an archaeologist, you could do these amazing things. So I looked at, you know, the UCAS catalogues and, and found that there was actually, I was based in Bath at the time and, and Bristol did an archaeology degree. So I quickly sent off a message and said, you know, will you, will you take me, can I transfer? And uh, went on an open day and, and you know, we did practicals and, and geophysics and it was all, I just felt like this is me, this is my life. And, um, and they let me, they let me in so they let me change so that was sort of accidental uh, to start with and then uh, when I graduated I couldn't actually this was this was a little while back now and uh, there weren't really many jobs uh, at the time it was a really bad time to be a sort of practical archaeologist so I ended up working in, in libraries and then in museums and um, went off to my kids and eventually realized you know I have got to go back to archaeology did a master's degree back in Oslo and um and so the Vikings, which has become my specialism now, was something also I wasn't really that interested in. Um, it just seemed a bit boring because I'd grown up with the Vikings sure. in Norway. It's <laughs> kind of what you do. And um, so I wanted something more exotic. But when I studied uh, for my master's and, and did a, a sort of one-year research project, I thought, you know what, this actually, the Vikings are quite cool. <laughs> There's a, but also because there was a lot to, to new stuff coming out, new things to find out, and, and especially in bioarchaeology. So I ended up uh, also accidentally for my master's thesis working on human remains, doing isotope analysis. Um, I was sort of scrambling along for something to do, and, and one of my old tutors back in, in, in Bristol said, um, you could do bioarchaeology, you could isotopes. And I said, well, I haven't done chemistry. I don't, I don't really, I'm not a scientist. And he just said, well, well, do you know how to cook? 
And I said, well, yeah, I'm a great cook and I love baking. And he said, well, there you go. That's chemistry is basically baking. So uh, if you can do that, you can you can work on human remains. So um, so that was that was how I ended up doing isotope analysis and, and looking at mobility and migration. Turns out nobody in Norway, apart from one other person, was doing this work. So it was a it was a completely open field. So I was felt that I was in the right place at the right time. I then ended up uh, with a PhD, going on to do a PhD. Um, and again, there was this this amazing Viking material of Repton in Derbyshire, this this Viking great army mass grave with with you know hundreds and hundreds of bodies that had never been analysed. And um, again, I think I was at the right place, uh, right time, and got to do that for my my PhD. That really, and it was all—it just seemed a bit accidental. It wasn't really planned, but yeah, that got me to to the end of my PhD at least. That's an amazing, fortuitous sort of identification of changing a profession. Yes. Uh, but so nice that passion, that interest, that enthusiasm for what you immediately identified as something you wanted to be doing drove you to just carry on through that traditional academic career and. Oslo and um, the Vikings is something that I hold dear to my heart, not least because that's where I met Derek for the first time in the (laughs) the Viking Museum uh, in Oslo. You you mentioned there about isotope analysis and and, and migration or or whatnot. I wonder if you could pull out a bit more about that that research. What what sort of things were you particularly looking at in, in in that research? When I started doing my master's degree, I was looking at Viking Age skeletons from Norway and trying to find out really what we could tell with new scientific techniques, both about diet, so any dietary differences. Uh, there was this this idea that people didn't eat quite as much meat, especially as in England, because obviously Norway being that the sort of geography or having the geography it has, it's not so great for, for agriculture, it's not so great for, for you know owning cattle and that sort of thing. But we didn't really have any actual data on it. But also looking at the, the sort of people who were migrating, moving out of Norway and maybe back in again and um, saying there was, there was this idea that, that people kind of stayed put. If they went out, they went out and then the rest of them just stayed in their little villages. But there wasn't really, again, any evidence for that. And I was, I was interested in women as well. What were the women doing in the Viking Age? Because the traditional story was always that the women stayed at home and the menfolk went out and brought back, you know, trinkets and things as gifts. But actually there's all these graves that contain um, foreign grave goods in female graves and, and, and the question was could they actually have, have taken them with them themselves so that was one of the things I wanted to look at and oops, surprise surprise turned out the women were actually moving around an awful lot as well so this that's all story didn't really didn't work so that was a really great discovery and that was very exciting because I felt like you know, even at master's level, I could discover something really new that people hadn't uh, done before just because you know, methods weren't available. And then with my PhD research uh, at Repton, we had this mass grave that was assumed to be the Great Army. There were some issues with the radiocarbon dates, so it was meant to date to 873. The radiocarbon dates of these almost 300 bodies in a, in a mass grave uh, were actually far too early. So one of the things I did with my research there was to um, look at the marine reservoir corrections, so looking at whether consuming marine foods could actually have have affected the radiocarbon dates, making them seem too early. And again, surprise, surprise, that's exactly what what happened. So again, this is something that sat around for 20, 30 years and nobody had quite resolved it because the methods just hadn't been applied. So it was such a wonderful thing to be able to do that and go, yes, look, here we go. So the whole mass grave then dated to the right time and we could prove it. And And actually, that was also quite an interesting turning point because I published a paper on that 
it's quite straightforward. I didn't actually do anything that clever. It was more that, that I just didn't. But um, it's, um, it was picked up by the news all over the world. And all of a sudden, I had Nat Geo calling me. I had CNN on the phone. And, and it was just, it went everywhere because it was, I mean, like it's an old find. The, the site was dug up in the 80s. So it wasn't even new. But some reason, it's, it's that sort of science angle, I think. So that actually led to a lot of media work it got which was something I really wanted to do as well so um, at one point I think I had seven different production companies uh, contacting me saying can we make a documentary about your research which was terrified I was offered an option which is when they sort of try and give you money so that they can make a program on your thesis which which was bizarre (laughs) (laughs) this this seems relatively unheard of I'd suggest yeah right yeah yeah, I haven't come across anybody else who's been had their thesis option. So, um, so that was all a bit mad. But I did really want to go into to media, TV, especially. So I thought this is a great opportunity, and I had a lot of you know lots of documentaries based on that site. Um, in the end, it led to a sort of full length Channel Four documentary based on my PhD research. Um, which is so much fun because I, I got to be part of developing the whole thing as well, and and sort of actually making the story for the for the program as well as you know being in it so um so yeah so another one of those lucky right time right place I think <laughs> yeah. uh, we've we've often said on the podcast that there's no such thing as luck and you make <laughs> your own luck and I, I'd, I'd argue that's definitely the case here because it was it sounds like an amazing project which was worthy of, of wider media attention and uh, as you say the, the the links between science and the past it, it, it always seems to be a big draw for the media and it's lovely to see it being picked up with such such enthusiasm uh, and I must admit um as you were talking there I I I, I was scribbling down notes throughout and the first thing I wrote down was portfolio career and that's <laughs> yeah. a term I'm going like to so borrow because it it's fantastic um, and looking through your career portfolio um, when I was doing my painstaking research i.e. reading through your profile just now um, <laughs> I, something leapt out at me and I, it, it pains me to do this because I'm I, I'm not a fan of giving Lawrence an opportunity to talk about this particular subject but it, I, I know you've been to Rapa Nui how does that fit with the Viking work and the bio arc work. Yeah, so I have to confess that I actually haven't been there technically, okay. which is massively high up on my bucket list. But um, this came about uh, because I got an opportunity to do another research project. So I did a lot of training in ISO because I wasn't a chemist. And yes, you can just learn it by cooking. And, uh, but actually, <laughs> if you're going to study it in depth, you need to learn a bit more. So I did a lot of courses uh, in the US, actually, at the University of Utah. Um, I went to ISO camp, which is just as nerdy Ooh. as you can imagine. <laughs> Sounds amazing. Great. It was two weeks weeks of hard isotope science um, but they had this this brilliant scheme where they uh, which was funded by the the NS, uh, NSF so the National Science Foundation in the US uh, to go to one of the instructors labs with another project that isn't your PhD but something else uh, which is great and you could do an in-depth research project so I looked around and I thought you know what uh, one of the places I loved as a child was Rapa Nui, Eastern Island, um, especially the work of Tu Heyerdahl, who's a bit of a controversial character, really, but he did carry out archaeological excavations on Rapa Nui uh, back in, I think, the 50s or something. 
We had a museum in Oslo called the Kontiki Museum, which is about his, his experimental raft that he, he sort of sailed across the Pacific in. I used to go there as a child and look at all this sort of archaeological material from Rapa Nui and thinking, oh my goodness. Um, and so I thought, you know what, maybe I could try and do some isotope research there. Um, and I contacted them and they said, yeah, go for it. So they had all this this material that nobody had studied. Um, I got the research grant from the NSF. I actually carried out the research uh, in Honolulu at the University of Hawaii, of all places. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. Why why wouldn't wouldn't you know, you know what, actually, it was, a lot of it was dreadful. It was an air-conditioned lamp, um, no windows for more than 12 hours a day, and I was literally sitting Not on the floor it. crying. <laughs> but then the weekends were, were much better. But anyway, um, it was because there was a specialist in... Pacific uh, fish isotopes on Pacific fish, and that was exactly what I was studying. So there was a reason; it wasn't just me going on and jolly. But yeah, so that's that's how that that came in, and, and we ended up getting uh, quite a lot of research out of that. We also collaborated with the DNA lab and looked at you know, did the the Rapa Nui population actually come from Polynesia or, or South America? So it sort of it got it got quite um, quite a lot of legs actually, which um, which was great. That's amazing. And there's so many things I'd love to talk to you about <laughs> right now, but I'm very aware that we have a limited yeah, we've, amount we've, of time. We've got 20 minutes left, not the Rapanui <laughs> podcast with Lawrence and Kat. We'll do that another time. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, there's a couple of things out of that and out of the previous discussion in that Derek mentioned you make your own luck and that that's a perfect example of you identifying an opportunity and going out and making it work for you, which is amazing. Now, a lot of people come out of their PhDs, I think it's fair to say, and go, now what? I'm an expert in this, but now what? And this doesn't sound like that's been a necessary an issue for you. And I wonder, so you, you had this fantastic television show opportunity with Channel 4 and your thesis was deservedly recognised in re-examining a previous site, yes, but in a, in a new way that gives us a fantastic new insight. Um, did you strategize what you were going to do out of your PhD or is it, as you sort of alluded to at the start, have you now, have you subsequently been going out and making it for yourself? Yeah, I think I, I think I have really. I mean, I was, I had a bit of an existential crisis towards the end of my PhD when uh, I was thinking, you know, what am I going to do? And um, my, my sort of planned route was to go down the academic road and uh, go into proper academia, go and do postdocs, get funding, this, that and the other. But there were so many things that worked against that. I mean, I, I have a family, I've got young children and my husband's got an established job. So we can't move. And that's, that's one of the big things as an academic, you have to kind of go where the jobs are because there are so few of them but that just wasn't an option and I realized that quite quickly so then what you're left with is applying for some really very extremely competitive uh, research grants and things um, sort of postdocs British Academy that sort of thing and um, and I did go for one of those but you know it was so much hard work and I ended up being I was up against my best friends who were doing the same sort of thing and it became so competitive so horrible and it was all about you know publishing and, and um, and I thought, you know what, I actually don't know if I want to do that. Um, I want to explore something else. And I wasn't really wedded to the idea of having an academic career. I love my research and I love doing this, but actually I was really enjoying the media work. Um, I was really enjoying trying to do more outreach as well. You know, things that actually reach people rather than just sit and get more and more narrow and focused. But, you know, how could I do, do bigger things, just get to more people? So I started looking around a bit and, and actually decided that I wanted to try and write a book 
um, a, a non-fiction book for for the general public and wanted to try and do more TV. So um, I actually gave myself a year in my mind. I said, OK, I'm going to try this for a year. I'm going to try different opportunities, do some bits of freelance writing and other research. Obviously, I was very lucky that I've got a husband with a full time job so that, you know, and I could help look after the kids and, and we could actually do that. But um, uh, and I recognize that that's a, that's a big part of it. But um, I thought I'm going to work really, really hard, try and get the book off the ground um, and then see if that turns into anything. And um, yeah, actually, it did. So <laughs> so that's very good. So where are you now then with your if, if, if you were to give a brief introduction to someone that hadn't uh, an early careers archaeologist that wasn't aware of you? I mean, I'm not sure that's likely to be the case, but um, <laughs> how would you describe yourself as a professional now um that's actually a really good question i'm not entirely sure <laughs> i still, still call myself an archaeologist but i think archaeologists on my twitter profile i think i've got archaeologist author and broadcaster so that's kind of how i divide my time really and um i've done a few jobs i did did actually do a job for a museum for 18 months last year because a job came out i came up and it was good but most of the time now i i write books i'm working on my second book um so i wrote my first uh non-fiction book last well it was published last year, a book called The River Kings, A New History of the Vikings from Scandinavia to the Silk Roads, uh, which did far better than I could possibly ever have imagined, which was great. It's amazing. Yeah, and I do various TV jobs and uh, also have a, a podcast. So that's kind of how I divide my time these days. It's an amazing kind of, I'm going to use the word again, portfolio of, of, of roles. Um, and I've got the I've got the uh, the Waterstones page for your book in front of me now, so I'm going to be ordering it um, when we finish talking because I, uh, shamefully I haven't read it yet. Um, but it's going to it's it's going to go That's on my okay. my list of, of books to read, uh, which there's a few at the moment. But uh, there's so much in there, and this this is probably going to make this next question quite difficult, I think. Um, but is there if you had to pick one thing, one thing of your career or one of your projects or even just something you've been involved in that you're particularly proud of and you'd say this is my mark this is my thing what would you pick um I think that's going to have to be my book River Kings actually because I've I mean I have wanted to write books since I was a little child I was making tiny little DIY books when I was about you know five six <laughs> the whole life that's been one of the things that I always wanted to do I didn't know what about but um and then as I, was, as I said I was coming out of my PhD I thought I want to get they'll do so many interesting things I've been so lucky to have such exciting projects and I want to bring that to people so um so I try, worked really hard and, and getting a sort of that type of book that gets sold um you know in the in the bookshops and and, and that does gets on the bestseller list and there's a lot of hard work in that it doesn't just happen actually you don't even just have to write a good book and then it'll naturally happen you have to do a lot of marketing you have to push for it really really hard um and there were a lot of steps in that and, and it took a lot of um effort sort of personally uh, not just the actual physical writing but even you know even just to get the contracts uh, you first have to get an agent and going out there and getting a literary agent, you basically have to say, I'm absolutely brilliant and here's what I can do. And you've got to convince someone that you can do this incredibly difficult thing and you have to convince them to sort of back you. <clears throat> and then they have to then go and convince the publishers. Um, and I had some interviews with editors and they were absolutely terrifying <laughs> because they say, well, why are you the person to, to sort of do this thing? And you've got to sit there and convince them that you can do it. So there's, there was a lot of different angles in that. And then there's the actual hard work of writing an 80,000 word book 
um, especially something that is slightly because the format of my book is slightly different. It's not you know it's not an academic book, um, but I've tried to write something very engaging uh, that introduces lots of archaeology and lots of history, and um, and you know to try to have the confidence to say I think this works. I know nobody else has really done it that way, but I think it works, and I think it's going to be be good enough and sit there for a year and write it is um is quite hard work so so i think being able to persevere with that and convince enough people to gamble on it um and you know actually getting all that help from them i think that's that's probably the the biggest thing and and the fact that it did well it got to number two on the sunday times bestseller list uh which you know i i still can't quite believe happened and uh, as, as Dan Snow would say, it will transform the way you think about Vikings. Well, there you go. Dan Snow says it. It's got to be true. He knows what he's talking about. <laughs> exactly. Really. exactly. Um, for those people that have always wanted to write a book or are thinking, I wouldn't mind writing a book, where do you start? <laughs> you just have to start writing. Actually, I think that is the key. That sounds really stupid, but you actually have to just start writing. And I remember years ago reading some some of these sort of silly advice pages and they said, you know, if you're going to be a writer, you actually have to write. And so you have to just practice because it is, I mean, so I'm working on my second book now and, and I've got this looming deadline in October of 80,000 words. And I think I'm about you know, less than 10,000 words in. And I, you just have to keep on writing every day, um, keep on having ideas. I think reading a lot as well, getting ideas about what sort of things, but actually just getting into the habits of, of writing a lot because it's it, it takes a lot of work and you've got to just get used to writing lots and lots and being a bit you know being creative about it well if you want to if you want to write a history book for example um you know think what sort of other formats how can you play about with that idea you don't have to do what everybody else does but what what would your ideal history book be um think about that and then start playing around with it playing around with with you know structure and and, and ideas and content and and then yeah just just getting started, basically. I think I must admit that's the uh, the stumbling block I've always found because every now and again I'll go through cycles of wanting to write a book, and the bit that always holds me back is actually writing something and sitting down and writing <laughs> yeah. it. The, the ideas pop into my head, the will is there at, at times, but it's the the sitting down and having the self discipline to force myself to put words on paper is is something I I I, I tend to find myself distracted by making a silly video or making a podcast. Unfortunately, <laughs> it is necessary. <laughs> <laughs> and it is the hardest of just that persevering with it and believing in yourself, believing it's going to happen, that you can do it, you can write 80,000 words. That is the hardest thing, absolutely. I like that, that believing in yourself. I also like what you're saying about um, if you think it should be a different format or composition or approach, um, then just, just believe in that and go for that as well. And was there an element of taking into account the audience for that or was it just purely, do you know what, I... I'd prefer it to be like this. There's <laughs> a bit of both, really. I mean, I thought, what would I like to to read? And and I have to confess, I don't read a lot of nonfiction for pleasure. I read what I have to do for, for work and for writing and research, which is actually a hell of a lot. So in the evening, when I've got a bit of spare time, I am very unlikely to pick up a nonfiction book. I read a lot of uh, novels, a lot of, of crime fiction especially. So there's a sort of detective element uh, in my book. And I thought... 
if I can just take something of that, something that that sort of when I read a psychological thriller or something like that, there's, there's something that drives through. If I can take an, an element of that and put it into a nonfiction history book, then it would be much more engaging. That's what I would want to, to, to read myself. And also, I think working in TV has been really helpful because you always have to tell a story and you have to be quite short and you've got to be, you know, think of that audience the whole time. And um and I think somebody, when I did some presentation training um, one time, they said, well, imagine that you're talking to somebody who really doesn't want to be there, really isn't interested, and you're trying to convince them to listen to you. I kept that in mind as well quite a lot. You know, I've got to constantly convince the reader that they want to finish this book. Um, and that was quite good. That was quite fun. That's neat. So, so before we go on to the next question, then, do you want to give us a very brief synopsis of what people can expect from the, this thing you're most proud of, and rightly so? River Kings uh, started doing my PhD research, really. It started in Repton, in this this great army Viking site, which I knew I wanted to write about. But it starts with something very small. It starts with a bead, a carnelian bead, that was found in this mass grave in the 1980s. And uh, it was sort of put aside. Everybody forgot about it. It wasn't written about. I, it came into my temporary possession in 2017, just when I'd finished my, my thesis. I got all these boxes. I was going to help catalogue some of the uncatalogued material. Looked through the boxes, found this tiny little orange bead and uh, realised that that was actually quite exciting because that bead had come to England to deepest, darkest Derbyshire, all the way from uh, a mine, most likely in Gujarat in India. And it had got there in 873, which is when it was buried. So I just thought... <laughs> That's amazing. How? <laughs> Why? When you, what, what story does that bead tell? How did it get there? You know, practical sense, how did it get there? Um, but also, you know, what sort of trade networks? You know, what, what were the events behind it? Who did it belong to? No, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I thought, well, if, if that's so exciting for me, maybe... It would be for other people as well. So River Kings basically follows that Carnelian bead backwards from Repton all the way to India. And it goes via Scandinavia. So I follow the route I think it took. And I go through basically the contacts between East and West, the contacts between Silk Roads, uh, which is the networks that this this trade was part of, and uh, Viking Age, England and Scandinavia. So trying to sort of incorporate all the new evidence, all the new information, new science, all of that along the way. And, uh, and yeah, trying to explain how it might have got from Gujarat to Derbyshire. Oh, incredible. Now I've got to read it. <laughs> Brilliant. Yes, please do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was very Thanks. well sold. <laughs> it does sound awesome. And I love that it started with just a single artefact, takes you on that whole journey. And I, I love that that was the starting point. That sounds incredible. So we've we've dealt with what you're most proud of and then moving through biblical terms, um, we move to envy. Uh, and <laughs> looking around at what other people have done, other projects, other um, projects past, present, future, anything else really in the world of archaeology. Is there anything you are particularly envious of or you'd like to have been involved in um, that, that's caught your eye? Yeah, an awful lot, actually. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just find it difficult to watch all these archaeology programs and, and all these other sites because I think I wish I had done that and that was my site and all of that. So I do get that. I get sort of dig envy a lot. But I think the one that stuck with me really for a long time and staying with the Viking theme is one of the historic excavations uh, of the 
probably the most beautiful ever Viking ship, the Oseberg ship, which was really the ship that that sort of sparked my interest in the Vikings as a child. Um, we should go to this museum and watch, look at this this huge ship. It was a, a ship that was excavated between 1904 and 1905, and it was found in a burial mound in, in Norway. And because it was buried in clay, it was so, you know, it's almost perfectly preserved. And, and if you Google the Oseberg ship, you, you can see the photos of it coming out of the ground. And it, it just, it's, the ship is just lying there. And you've got these incredible uh, carvings on the side of the ship. And uh, it was even, it was even tied down. So, so this was a grave. Uh, it had incredibly elaborate textiles and, and grave goods of all sorts of, of, of different kinds. They had food, he had animals, offerings, um, and two women buried in it. But it was even, it even had a rope that was tied to a big rock so that it wouldn't sail away. And that's how it was found. And this, this ship dated to the ninth century. It was dated, it was buried around eight, um, like eight, I can't remember off my head now, eight, three, four or something like that. And then in 1904, somebody comes and digs it out and that rope that ties it, that moors it, is still there. Um, so that's my, my sort of major envy. It was, it was executed by a Swedish archaeologist called Gabriel Gustafsson. He actually did a really good job for, for being early 20th century. It was all recorded very well. There's beautiful drawings. Um, but yeah, I just think to, to have been there, been part of that, would have been just incredible. That is incredible. And it's also incredible that both Lawrence and I have seen that ship. Ah, <laughs> Quite exciting. It's the ship to see. <laughs> that, yeah, that museum is incredible. It's, it's, it's a peculiar giant. It's, it's a, a strange setting because it's a giant cross almost that you're in with these these four massive ships, is it? Yeah, there's so three three big ships and um, some smaller ones as well. But it's, it's being converted now. So I was actually, uh, my job I did last year was working with the museum um, because it's being extended massively. So in 2020, it's going to reopen um, and it's going to be hugely extended, brand new exhibitions. It's going to be brilliant. Do you have to oh, go back? Yes, I have to go back. Fantastic. I imagine being there for that excavation, as you say, just seeing these things come out in such good good order. But the, the museum does a good job of recreating that in terms of allowing us to see it. So great choice, great choice. So um, that that leads us on nicely then into our final question of, of, of the podcast. Derek and I, we've got a working time machine and we've taken it away for this, this six-month break and given it a bit of a clean and a buff and made sure it's gone through its time machine MOT. And it's, it's, it's back and ready to go and as ever our uh, lovely guests get a free return uh, trip in our time machine and all we need to know is where you'd like to take it and, and what you hope to see oh okay um i can't it's difficult to choose one isn't it um not really fair <laughs> to have that but you know what? i'm going to be very boring and i'm going to stay with exactly the same thing because i would like to be there not well Obviously, I could stop. If, I, if you can have a stop, I don't know if, you, if you're allowed to sort of break your journey. I could break. If you're going to the same place, we'll let you turn. Same place. A, yeah, 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 yeah. So maybe break my journey, um, <laughs> change trains in 1904 at that Oseberg <laughs> ship. But I would have liked to be there when it was buried. I would have liked to have seen that funeral and just to see the people who were there, people who were watching it, see how they reacted to it, see, you know, all that. So we obviously, in an archaeological grave like that, you just see the final 
thing, the final sort of tableau of, of things that have been put together. But actually, I think for someone like that, the funeral procession would have been such a huge part of it. And um, I just love to have seen some of the people involved, find out who they were and what their lives were. And just, just those bits that, that even my fancy scientific techniques are never going to get to. We're never going to get their personalities. We're not going to hear the music they played or the songs they sang, you know, all of those bits that are such a big part of that that particular funeral um, or any anyone like that. I think that's kind of it. And that this is also really me remembering back to being about nine or ten or something like that, going to that museum for the first time and realising that you have these physical objects that kind of connect you to the past because I could I could touch that ship obviously I was a really good girl so I didn't do that because you know somebody would shout at me but uh, you could <laughs> you could touch the ship you could touch the object and that would essentially directly link you to another little girl in 834 who also touched the ship as it was being buried so going back there via 1904 that would be my choice this might be a terrible question but do, does the archaeological record give us an idea of, of of sites like this, not necessarily this particular one, but of what, what was taking place around them at the time that they're, they're being closed? Do we get to see evidence of fires or feasting or uh, activities? In some of them we do. And certainly some of these Viking sites, there are evidence of, of feasts, so that they would have been funerary feasts. Um, but most of the time, there's so much we don't know. Oseberg, interestingly, appears to have been open for a while. So new pollen evidence has shown that the mound was actually open for quite some time. So it wasn't just immediately closed, but actually it seems like half the ship was buried, but not all of it. So it wasn't just an, an instant event, but later on, presumably you could go and, and visit and, and see it and, and things like that. And um, one of the ships also had all this blue clay all the way around it. So it must have looked like it was in water because the clay was very specific around the shape of it. So so they clearly there are some little clues like that, but unfortunately just, just not enough. I mean, but we assume by seeing everything, you know, the animals, animals have been slaughtered and thrown in the grave. So it must have been quite loud and quite noisy. And so I think you have to imagine, but... Um, but yeah, not not enough. Oh well, that, I mean that's a great decision. I I want to see this now as well. The 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 beauty of it being our time machine is that we get to come. So uh, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for that, Kat. Thank you so much for your time this evening and 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 for sharing your career in ruins with us and our listeners. Um, it's it's been a a great first podcast back and um, a fascinating insight into a very different career that we that we haven't looked into so far. So thank you for being part of that with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was a great pleasure. Oh, that's brilliant, Derek. What, what have we got coming up? We've got a we've got a few um, few interviews already bagged. Well, not bagged, but to come. Yeah, yeah. You've been a very busy guy the last few weeks. My <laughs> inbox has been overflowing with podcast invites. It's not like I've got a PhD to finish or anything. <laughs> <laughs> Your procrastination skills are amazing. Yeah, we've got the the wonderful Natalie Haynes coming up. Hopefully, in the next episode. And who've we got after that to remind me? Uh, we've got John Gator, yeah. Time Team Geophysics Whiz. We've got Naomi Supel, mm-hmm. an environmental archaeologist. And we've got Neil, who does the animations and graphics for Time Team, which is so, uh, 
what you're really saying is you sat in the canteen at Time Team and asked everyone to do a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you sent me a great text the other day saying, I'm so glad we're back to uh, the Korean room's original ethics or, or ethos. I was like, what do you mean? Uh, Derek replies, well, just doing interviews with people that we know we can get hold of easily. <laughs> <laughs> and this, sorry, Kat, I really appreciate you're still here and this completely undermines the fact that we've invited you and you're a fantastic archaeologist. Thanks, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but there's been an element of we've just been so busy it's been hard to go out and and sort of deliberately poke amazing people and through fortunate circumstances we've had amazing people fall on our laps so um hopefully i've recovered myself there a bit (laughs) (laughs) see i'm gonna i'm gonna phrase that in a slightly nicer way and say (laughs) that the whole reason we decided to do a podcast was because we get to be so lucky and meet so many lovely people and we get to talk to them and that's what we've got to do again because we got to meet a whole bunch of new lovely people um one of which we should probably let go because they're about to be on telly and i'd quite like to go and watch it too (laughs) all right well i'll see you all soon kat thank you so much again and um, my pleasure keep listening tune in next week (laughs) 